Good morning. Thank you to the Hall family for leading us in music today and for singing. I know we are always blessed by that. By the way, you can turn to John chapter 13. I hope you're all having a great day on this beautiful Sunday. For those who are Bears fans, they did draft Ohio State's quarterback. I've had several people, even Don, the missionary in France we support, emailed me, and I've had other people ask, you know, how's he going to do? And I'm thinking to myself, I feel like I should be asking the Bears the question. Uh, they're the ones who have the history with quarterbacks, but uh, I hope he's successful. Um, John chapter 13. And we will be doing communion after the sermon. We're looking at verses 18 to 30. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me sends the one who, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you were doing, what you were going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you as merely finite people in a fallen and sinful world. Lord, and you are the great and mighty Lord of creation. And on this Sunday, may we praise you. Lord, we thank you so much for your blessings and for your goodness. Lord, we pray for our community and for our state and for our nation. Lord, we continue to pray as a church for your blessings upon our fellowship as we grow in holiness and love for one another and in the knowledge of you. Lord, I pray for this family in Hoopston who has gone through an unimaginable tragedy this past week. Lord, and I pray for your nearness to them and that community. Lord, I want to pray for Jerry and Edna Kluver as they celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary this week, Lord. And, um, Lord, I thank you for, for couples who, through the test of time, remain faithful to each other and grow together. Lord, what a blessing that is to themselves, to families, and to the world to see. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless our time in your word this morning. Lord, I pray that we be pointed to your truth and gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. In Saratoga National Park in eastern New York, there's the Boot Monument, which was erected in 1887, to honor one of the great generals of the early part of the American Revolutionary War. An inscription on the monument reads, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army who was desperately wounded on this spot, the Sally Port of Burgoyne's Great Western Redoubt, 7th October, 1777, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution, and for himself, the rank of Major General. The general had also helped lead the patriots to battle, uh, to victory in battle at Ticonderoga in 1775. And he had also put together one of America's first naval fleets. His name was Benedict Arnold. And before he became infamous for his betrayal of the American cause and attempting to surrender West Point to the British, he had been one of our greatest generals. I tell that story for this reason. Sometimes it can be hard to separate a person from the moment that makes them infamous. Today's passage covers the Last Supper, and Jesus will foretell of the betrayal of Judas. In last week's passage, we covered the washing of the disciples' feet, and Jesus calling his disciples to serve and to show humility to each other. But that passage last week points forward to this passage and has hints of the betrayal that is soon to befall Jesus. For instance, when Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples, Peter refuses the foot washing. Jesus explains how the washing that he brings is necessary for having a share in what Christ has to offer. Verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And if that wasn't obvious enough, in the following verse, verse 11, John adds the note, For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And with that introduction, we come to our passage, and it's the Last Supper. And Jesus will not now talk about the betrayal which is coming. And we're going to look at this passage in three scenes this morning. And I have three words to summarize those scenes. Anticipation, speculation, revelation. Going to our passage, first scene, anticipation, verse 18. Jesus is still speaking. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Once again, we should be reminded that what Jesus is saying is all part of the divine plan. All four Gospels mention Jesus foretelling his betrayal. When Jesus says in this verse that he knows whom he has chosen, it is that he knows whom he has chosen among his disciples. And then he goes on to explain why his betrayal is actually fulfillment of prophecy. I think Pastor Richard Phillips is helpful in understanding this verse. 
Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41 at the end of this verse. And the background of Psalm 41 is pretty interesting to consider. Because Psalm 41 is by David. And it's a psalm about him being betrayed by his own son, Absalom, who teams up with David's advisor, Ahithophel, to conspire to overthrow David. Talking of the close relationship, David says in Psalm 41, 9, Even my close friend whom I have trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so in that psalm, David is talking of the close connection of a person with whom he has enjoyed table fellowship and the eating of bread. Especially in the ancient world, those were powerful symbols of trust and unity. Commuting with someone who had then turned around and betrayed David. And so Jesus quotes that verse because he's saying that the betrayal of one who is in close fellowship will befall Jesus. And he's taking Psalm 41.9 and he's applying it to himself and to what's about to happen. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Borrowing a second idea from Richard Phillips. When someone close to us betrays us, betrays our trust, it's absolutely devastating. The betrayal of trust of a parent to a child can leave emotional wounds from which a person never fully recovers. There's the bitter pain of a spouse who has vowed to be faithful and to love and to cherish and to forsake all others who cheats in a relationship and the the devastation that that causes. There are siblings who have exploited other siblings for their own personal gain, the people that they should be closest to in the world. There are betrayals of close friendships. I've seen family members who have been betrayed by business partners. And I'm sure that many of us here today have had points in our lives where someone close to us, someone we trusted, really hurt us or abused our love or our friendship or our trust, used our goodwill against us. That is incredibly difficult to endure and painful. And this doesn't erase the pain, but I do think it's important to remember that we have a Savior who entered into that. In being man, in being human, he too had relationships with people, and he too was betrayed by one close to him. Jesus traveled with the disciples for three years, and one of them betrayed him. Again, that's not excusing betrayal. And I'm not trying to mitigate the sins that people commit. But in the times when there's temptation to hold on to bitterness or contempt or hatred. To also remember that we have a savior who is gracious in the face of his own betrayal. Verse 19, Jesus is continuing to speak. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe That I am he. So Jesus talks of his betrayal. And the reason why he foretells his betrayal is to inform the disciples. That when he is betrayed, his role as the Christ is in no way diminished. That the divine plan is in no way thwarted. History 
gives us many examples of people who would have been otherwise inconsequential without infamous atrocities. World War I was triggered by the killing of the Archduke of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Ferdinand, by a, a Serbian nationalist named Gavrilo Princip. Gavrilo Princip, who would have been otherwise forgotten by history, changed the course of history because he ignited the spark that set off World War I. The September 11th terrorist attacks carried out by 19 hijackers, 19 men changed history for the worse, and we are still living in the shadow of that. But Judas did not turn the ministry of the Lord Jesus upside down. He didn't stop Jesus. He didn't interrupt the divine plan. And quoting from Psalm 41.9, Jesus talks of his betrayal as fulfillment of prophecy, and he informs his disciples of his betrayal before it happens so that their faith will not be shattered after the crucifixion. Jesus is the prophet who points to the fulfillment of prophecy, and he's the savior whose betrayal has been foretold by the prophets. Jesus says that he's telling them what will happen, so when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. We once again see Jesus using the phrase that is used throughout this gospel, I am, from the Greek ego, me, which is pointing to his own divinity. It's the divine title that God uses of himself in Exodus 3. And again, Jesus has done that throughout this gospel, pointing that he himself is God. Verse 20, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. In some ways, this verse is a precursor to sections that will follow it in John's gospel. But for now, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he's gone. Jesus is going to be betrayed. His time with the disciples is limited. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead, that time with them will also be short. And so he's telling the disciples that when he's gone, receiving the disciples will be tantamount to receiving Jesus because receiving Jesus is tantamount to receiving God who sent him. We can't deduce it in this verse alone, but at the Last Supper, as Jesus will continue speaking to his disciples, he will tell them of the work that they will be doing after Christ has departed, the work that they will be doing in the world to spread the gospel message and to do the work of Christ in the world. And that's the work that the church continues to do to this day. And so that's our first scene. Jesus has talked of his betrayer. And he's alluded to it before in this gospel that he will be betrayed. And we've seen hints of that in this gospel. But at this point, Jesus is now talking about it on the night when he will be betrayed. And so the first scene is the anticipation of betrayal. It's quite likely that the disciples don't really understand how imminent the betrayal is. And that leads us into a second scene, speculation. Verse 21. 
After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus, again, explicitly tells the disciples that he's going to be betrayed. But again, we don't see any indication that the disciples themselves realize how imminent this is. It's also not certain if they grasp the weight of what Jesus is saying. It's not that one of them will slip up and accidentally betray Jesus. It's not that somebody will inadvertently cause harm to Jesus, but that Jesus will be deliberately betrayed and sold out. Verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I think verse 22 is important. Because I think when we imagine this scene, I think a lot of times we end up imagining it like it's a movie. And in the movie, in the Last Supper, they're at the table. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And it's almost like we expect the camera to shift over to Judas. And the music changes. Dun, dun, dun. And he even looks like a bad guy. And he's kind of twirling his mustache. But it's nothing like that. That's not what the reality is. And the disciples have no idea. They're looking around, uncertain, trying to figure out who Jesus is talking about. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus foretells his betrayal, Matthew says in 26, 22, and they were, speaking of the disciples, and they were very sorrowful. And began to say, and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? They're all wondering if they themselves might be the one who will betray Jesus. At the beginning of our time this morning, I talked about Benedict Arnold. And the reason for that is it's illustrative of a point. With Arnold, it's easy to forget Benedict Arnold, the successful major general, and to only remember Benedict Arnold, the man who betrayed America. With Judas, it's easy to forget Judas, the disciple, and only remember Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus. My point is not to build up the character of Judas and to say that he was a really great guy. But my point is that it's not like Judas is walking around during the ministry of Jesus and all the other disciples just see this sort of dark cloud hovering over him, that he's just obviously evil. He's one of the guys. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples, including Judas, Matthew 10, 1. He called him, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Judas is part of that group. He was gifted. John 12, 6 mentions that it was Judas who had been given charge of the money bag out of the disciples. The passage also mentions that Judas had stolen from the money bag, but the other disciples didn't know that at the time. Having charge of the money shows a certain level of trust that people had in him. You usually don't pick the person you trust the least to be your treasurer. Judas is one of the group. And I think that there's another piece of information in this passage which shows us 
why Judas would have been just about the last person anyone would have guessed. Looking at verses 23 to 25. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. There's a few things to note about these verses. First, and with all due respect, unless you've studied the background of the Last Supper, you probably picture it wrong. Because I think the temptation is to imagine the seating arrangement like how it would look today. Jesus and the disciples sitting around a long table or a wooden table. We see images like Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper, where Jesus is at a long table, sitting with his disciples. That's almost certainly not what the arrangement is. The Roman custom for a seating arrangement is something called a triclinium. And that fact is not a useless piece of trivia, because it's actually pretty relevant to understanding the passage. In a triclinium, you have multiple tables, which are low to the ground, arranged in a U-shape. And there's a hierarchical structure to the seating arrangement. The central table, kind of the, the bottom of the U, is where the three most prominent people at the dinner would sit, with the most prominent person seated at the middle of that table. To some extent, we have our own sort of informal rules about seating. If you go to somebody else's house for dinner, usually the head of the house sits at one end of the table, and if you are invited, maybe you'll be invited to sit at the opposite end of the table. It's not a hard and fast rule in our society, it was definitely more strictly enforced in Jesus' day. So instead of sitting at a nice wooden table with a nice dining room chair that we're used to, you're actually sitting basically on the ground, maybe on a pillow, and you're kind of leaning on the table. The gospel translates it as reclining. I always think of reclining as leaning back, like in a recliner, but they're really more kind of leaning on their side. The standard was you would lean against the table on your left elbow and eat with your right hand. Again, this is all relevant to understanding the passage. Because verse 23 gives an indication of where John is sitting. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Brief side note. John never refers to himself by name in his own gospel. He always refers to himself as one whom Jesus loved. He's not saying that out of boasting. Actually, it's the opposite. He's not saying, I, John, who am so important in the ministry of Jesus. Really, it's more like he's losing himself in the story. He's saying that the main thing is not to identify who he is, and the main thing about John is that he's just a guy whom Jesus loved. And that should be true for all of us. 
That should be the central, most important aspect of our lives. That we are known by the Lord Jesus. Not who we are, not who our family is, where we went to school, how much money we have. But that we are loved by Jesus. And that should be the part of our lives that is most clear to the rest of the world. Our relationship with Christ. So John isn't trying to boast. But he is mentioning where he was seated. The ESV says that John was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And the word to focus on is the word side. Because if you're imagining the Last Supper like they're sitting at a table in dining room chairs... It's easy to think that that means that Jesus is in one chair and John is in the chair next to Jesus. But that's not how it works. Because Jesus is leaning up against the table and John is basically lying down, leaning against the table next to Jesus. And the word translated as side in the ESV, in the Greek, More, it literally means that the disciple is sitting at Jesus' breast or Jesus' bosom. So Jesus is leaning on his left side. John is to his breast, which places John to the right side of Jesus. Hold that thought as we continue in the passage. Verse 24. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. First thing, Peter is not sitting at the main table. Clearly, everyone in the group has to be wondering who Jesus is talking about. Peter is always the one who speaks up first in the Gospels. But verse 24 does not say that Peter asks Jesus. Verse 24 tells us that Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. In other words, Peter motions to John, who's sitting next to Jesus, to ask Jesus. So they're sitting at the table. Peter kind of makes eye contact with John, and he's like trying to signal to to John to ask. And John obliges Peter in verse 25. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Again, notice the closeness of their proximity. Leaning back against Jesus. Now, that arrangement in our modern world would be absolutely awkward and uncomfortable. But that's how it was in the first century. John is literally next to Jesus. And so he asks him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered him, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Once again, it's not a movie. When Jesus does this, there's no soundtrack that suddenly switches to ominous music. To anyone looking, it appears that Jesus has simply given Judas a piece of bread. And I think that can be really easy to miss when you're reading the story. Because there's no indication that the other disciples know the significance of Jesus giving the bread to Judas. But I think when we read the story, it's easy to imagine that everyone knows what we know. And that everyone just heard what we just read. But they didn't. John hears what Jesus said. 
Because John is right next to Jesus, but not everyone else is, except for John and Judas. At least that's the view of most scholars, that Judas is the other person at the table of honor. And I think that's the view that makes the most sense of the story. And I think that that's further reason why Judas would have been the last person the disciples expected, suspected. He was gifted in charge of the money and seated at the table of honor. But Jesus knows who Judas really is. He knows who all of us really are. Judas might have fooled the other disciples. You might fool people in church. You might fool people in your own family. But there's no fooling an all-knowing Lord. And the antidote to that is faith. Believing in the Lord. Loving the Lord. Walking with the Lord. I say this often, but just because someone is in the church does not mean that they're in the family of God. Just because someone is in a church or a small group or knows the Bible does not mean that they truly know the Lord. Judas traveled with Jesus for three years. In Matthew 7, Jesus warns the disciples, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There have always and will always be those who seek to prey upon the church. Again, in Matthew 7, Jesus warns the disciples when he says, Not every one of you who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are those who infiltrate God's church, God's community, not out of worship, not because they're curious about God, but because they're at war with God. Never be shocked when people fall from grace. It's always unfortunate, but don't be shocked. Because there are very few people in our lives who we truly know. And I'm not saying that to be cynical or untrusting of the world. But as a reminder that we live in a fallen world. I think of high profile ministry leaders who fall from grace. It always causes a lot of pain and disappointment. And that's understandable. And I'm not the one who is the judge of people's souls. And I'm not the one who knows what people truly believe. But sometimes I read about the things that these people do and I can't help but wonder if they ever really knew the Lord at all. Because it can be easy to talk the talk. And a person can be very talented and very gifted, all the while using those talents to undermine the church. Anticipation. Speculation, the third scene in our passage, Revelation. We see Judas begin his work set against Christ. Verse 27. Then, 
After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Judas attacks Jesus, and it's demonic. But Judas is still responsible for his own actions and for his own sin. Verse 27 is the only time that the word Satan appears in the Gospel of John. In other Gospels, you see demon possession and exorcisms. John never mentions that. I think New Testament scholar Craig Keener is right in pointing out that in John's Gospel, there's more of a focus on the devil's role in specifically in Christ's betrayal. The bread that Jesus gives to Judas is meant to be a symbol of hospitality and fellowship as they celebrate the Passover. But Judas is said to betray Jesus. The other disciples are still apparently oblivious to this. We see in verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. They don't know what's going on. But the Apostle John knows, because John is sitting right there. He's given a front row seat to the betrayal of Jesus. When Jesus tells Judas in verse 27 to do what he must do quickly, Jesus is showing that he is still in control. He knows what Judas is up to. Verse 29 shows us that the disciples didn't know what that meant. Verse 29, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So Jesus says, do what you came to do quickly. The disciples think that Jesus has told Judas to hurry up and run an errand real quick. And that misunderstanding among the disciples is the reason why they're still aloof when when Judas leaves the dinner. Judas is leaving to betray Jesus. But the other disciples don't suspect a thing. And the passage ends on a simple, ominous note. Judas leaves in a hurry. Verse 30 says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. We've talked over and over in the Gospel of John of the teachings and the theme of light and darkness in this Gospel. Jesus is the light. He's the light of the world. And the light is contrasted with darkness. Significantly, light is not mentioned again in this Gospel after chapter 12. Chapter 12 is significant and symbolic of the light leaving. And here, there is no mention of light, only darkness, as Judas leaves. Yes, it's evening, it's nighttime. But the greater mood that John is trying to set in saying that it was night is the sense of the darkness of humanity and of the human soul in conspiring to darken the light of the world. And at this point, there is now no stopping Judas from betraying Jesus. I keep mentioning that Judas served with the disciples, that he was gifted. Again, I don't do that to minimize his betrayal of Jesus. But I do that because I think it can be so easy to look at Judas as this almost 
inhuman species. Like he's on just such a, such a higher stratosphere of evil that we can't possibly relate to him. But when we do this and act like Judas is so different from us, we make his part of the passion story something we can't even really learn from. There's an idea that I appreciate from the psychologist Jordan Peterson. And it's this idea that man, as a controlled beast, that man and humanity are capable of tremendous evil. And we look at bad people and think that they're so much worse than us. But really, we're just as capable. We look at Nazi Germany and think that they were so evil that we could never do such things. I think it's easy to think we're better than the others. And the evils of others are just so inherently worse than anything we could ever do. We can play the comparison game. But what is it that makes you so incapable of doing horrible things to people? Just because we behave doesn't mean we're incapable of tremendous evil and darkness. Peterson argues, and I think that he's right, that we can't truly begin to understand our capacity for good without understanding our capacity for evil. It's easy to think that we're good, that we're capable of doing good things, that we're capable of doing really good things. But what about evil? Are we just so good that we can't do bad things? Of course we can. We're fallen and in a sinful world. We're sinful and rebellious. Every time we willingly sin, it is an affront to Almighty God. Every time we sin, we're exercising our own pride and saying that we know better than God knows. We find ways to ignore the Lord. We turn from his light and follow the darkness. We turn to other things besides God for our sources of joy and fulfillment. We can be bitter and hateful towards other people. We can be self-righteous, controlling, manipulative. We sin against the God of the universe. I said a moment ago that we can't truly appreciate our capacity for good without understanding our capacity for evil. And it is also true that we cannot understand the greatness of God's grace and forgiveness without understanding the depths of our own sinfulness. That we are great sinners, but Christ is an even greater Savior. That we are in darkness, but Jesus is the light. That we are dead in sin, but that Jesus gives eternal life. And that apart from Christ, we're just as lost as Judas. And just like Judas, Jesus, in our sin, invites us to his table. Judas walked away from the table and walked into darkness. But we have an opportunity to respond to the light, to believe in Jesus, to embrace his grace, to, forgive, to know the forgiveness that he offers and to live the lives that he has for us. 
To live lives not for the world, not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. We are invited to know the almighty Lord of creation who died so that we can have life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your grace and truth and your Son who died so that we could have eternal life. Lord, there are challenges we face, be that our own sins, Lord, and also being victimized and hurt by the sins of other people. Lord, in the face of those difficulties and evils that people commit, may we rise above that and shine as light in spite of that and grow in our love for you in all times. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned that we are doing communion this morning. And that too is Jesus inviting us to his table. As always at this church, we practice open communion, which means that it is open to anyone who believes as Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Again, in the first century, table fellowship was so culturally significant for showing 